Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This week, we are shaking and stirring things up as we venture into the world of mixology. You may think it's a fancy word for bartending, but it truly is a science and it is as awesome as it is delicious. We're going to talk with an expert who has seen the science explode and is hoping to take it to new heights. And we'll also explore the possibility of artificial intelligence serving you the perfect drink. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn about two ingredients that definitely do not mix. Alcohol and caffeine. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to serve you up some refreshing science that's going to quench your thirst for knowledge. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Vodka martini. Shaken, not stirred. There's a science to that, making the perfect drink. For the last 30 years, this study has grown in popularity and is now an internationally recognized path for knowledge and discovery. As I mentioned when we first started SAS, if it has ology in the name, we have it covered. Our first guest is going to take us into this world. His name is Jim Meehan, and he has been involved in mixology for almost two decades. He is now working to find new discoveries by turning this science into one that explores environment and culture. Through his consulting firm known as Mixography, he hopes to identify and unify elements of cocktail culture through consultation in matters of design, recipe development, communication, product innovation, education, operations, and brand advocacy. What is mixology? Mixology, if we take it quite simply, is to study how ingredients are mixed together. And I think the earliest references go back all the way to the 19th century. So it sounds like a newfangled term that bartenders came up for, for people to regard them more seriously, but it's been around for quite some time. What led to this explosion that we've been seeing as of late it's interesting, you know, with the benefit of time now, we can like look back and I can see things I believe more clearly. The most famous person of, of this era is Dale DeGroff. And in 1987, he opened the Rainbow Room under uh, Joe Baum's auspices. Taking cues from Joe, he implemented a turn of the 20th century, I'm sorry, a turn of the 19th, um, 20th century bar program using fresh juices and, and cocktails going back to the golden age. So most people sort of start this back in 1987. And then, you know, Dale was, I think he was at the Rainbow Room for 12 years. So that brings us up to around 1999. And around that time in New York City, at least, a bar called Milk and Honey opened in 2000 and Angel's Share opened up a little before that. But I would say that the, the sort of key early, early moments would be Dale in 1987 and Milk and Honey in 2000. And this was a zeitgeist thing, like a sort of thing that was percolating up in our culture, I think, just as much as it was 
something that was driven by singular people and places. This reminds me so much of how a new branch of science starts. You have the pioneers, they have their labs, people come to those labs, they learn, and then they go and build their own labs, thereby increasing the science itself. And in that context, I find mixology a little like being in a chemistry lab, except they have much cooler names. How do you view experimenting as part of that mixology process? I think it's a huge part of it. And I think part of, you know, as I've studied some of those scientists and engineers, I think part of revolutionary science starts with, even before the, the experiments begin, with the person thinking about it, what is possible and what is plausible. What do we have to take for granted in order to push the boundaries? And I think that when you compare some of those great thinkers and, and scientists with some of the you know best chefs or, or bartenders in the world, you'll find that those are the, one of the things I think they share is their relentlessly optimistic idea of what is possible vis-a-vis -vis what's actually going on at that time. So I think that I would agree that I think that these figures share something in common. And it's interesting when we go back to those early days, I oftentimes also will describe the drinks that were served at a bar like Milk and Honey. It's a lot of trial and error. You cycle through, you want to make the perfect martini. You're going to just, you're going to set up your seven favorite gins and your seven favorite vermouths. And first you'll, you'll try all the different combinations and then you'll play with the proportions and then you'll try different garnishes. And the nerdiest among us will experiment with different sort of temperatures that maybe makes the flavor and character more volatile and therefore having more character. And it's sort of, it's fun and it can be quite scientific. You've taken mixology to new heights. You've won numerous awards, including the prestigious James Beard Foundation Bar Program of the Year. What does it take from your perspective to have a successful establishment that really relies on experimentation? I think that a huge part of it, and, and I would imagine you see parallels with this in science, there are, I'm sure, are scientists who are prodigious geniuses, but they probably aren't maybe great at publishing, or they're not in the circles that publish, that have the platform to publish. And I think where I was helpful in the early days was from my communications background. I think I translated, I also... When I moved to New York City in 2002, uh, it, was, it was a different time before we are now. And instead of considering the seven years of bartending experience I had in Madison, Wisconsin, where I lived before I moved to New York, everyone who I interviewed with said, well, you don't have two, year, two years of New York City bartending experience. We won't hire you. I had to work my way into the bar business in New York through restaurants and as a waiter. So I came into this mixology world through not quite fine dining restaurants, but nicer restaurants. I was in the right place at the right time from a pioneer, you know, of mixology standpoint, but I tried to bring what I learned in restaurants and incorporating fresh produce and the work ethic and techniques that I learned in restaurants. So I, I tried to unify the culinary world with the sort of like lounge driven bar world. And I think that was, probably a big part of why we won the first James Beard Award at PDT was, for me, the apotheosis of where this could go would be that the cocktail would be recognized as a culinary art, which I believe it very much is. 
in the same vein as scientists. Some have had the ability to go out in the public and make a difference. You're doing the exact same thing, except that instead of mixology, you are calling it mixography. Yeah, well, so unlike the term mixology, which goes back to the 19th century and drink, you know, cocktail drinks oriented bartenders, which call themselves mixologists, the term mixography, I had never heard it uttered until a mentor and colleague and friend of mine, historian David Wondrich, said it. And he said it in the context of his work as a drinks historian. And he never defined it for me, and I, and I never asked him about it. But what I understood mixography to be is differentiating itself from mixology, which is really liquid-focused. Mixography, to me, is a, is a word that almost borrows more from the sort of social or cultural anthropology that surrounds drinks. And I think for me, from my background in school, I studied English literature. It was, well, the funny part about talking about science on the science program is my dream growing up was always to be a medical doctor and since I was three years old. And that dream <laughs> kind of came to an end in college in organic chemistry and calculus when I realized I was not going to ace these classes and get straight A's and nail my MCATs. I was really beginning to be interested in how our mixology drinks culture had a, it had a soundtrack and it had a wardrobe and it had like a sort of design aesthetic and it had, it had its own values. And so my business, Mixography Inc., really sort of aims to, to not, I mean, I'm obviously drinks focused, but to examine all the elements that sort of buttress that opportunity to serve someone a delicious cocktail. So I think that as I've gotten older, I've realized that the drinks and the way they taste are balanced between strong, sweet, sour, bitter, umami, salty, hot, floral, herbal. Those things matter, but where the guest is coming from is just as important. So communication becomes key. As we've discussed in earlier episodes, when it comes to science, there is the belief that computers may be able to do an equal or better job than humans. Is this the case for mixology, though? Could a computer design a drink that will satisfy your every desire? Our next guests put that question to the test. They are Jonathan Pagnuti and Jim Whitehead. Jonathan was Jim's student at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and together they published a paper entitled Generative Mixology, an Engine for Creating Cocktails, which they presented at the 6th International Conference on Computational Creativity in 2015. So, is a computer better than a human at mixing drinks? Let's find out. So, Jim, what drove you to develop a cocktail generator? Right. It was not always a life's aspiration, I'll have you know, but two things were really driving it. One, Jonathan Pagnuti did this really interesting class project uh, making the cocktail generator. And I found that really interesting and wanted him to keep working on that because, you know, it was taking the, this idea of procedural content generation and applying it outside of the context of games where it's typically applied. Normally, procedural content generation is a field where People write algorithms and those algorithms can create levels inside video games or they can create the worlds where video games take place. 
but it's relatively rare to take those same algorithms and apply them outside the context of video games. And so here is Jonathan using these same techniques, but applying them in a real-world context. And so I thought that that was really interesting. So Jonathan, take us through the process of making that automated mixologist. I started sort of with an AI technique that we don't really see a whole lot used today, where I didn't know much about cocktail making before I started the project. So I went and read up about it, tried to find sort of patterns or sort of commonalities between how different mixologists were approaching the problem of cocktail making in what they were writing. And I ended up settling on working with a technique that we call computational grammars, which have their sort of basis in linguistics of all things, where they essentially work like a series of expansion rules. So you'll start with some high-level terms, and you'll try to figure out how those might be grounded out into lower-level concepts. And eventually, you go from sort of this high, very abstract description of what a cocktail is to like a real recipe you could make. Part of what made this project special and unique was that sort of started with seven different like, categories or exemplars of cocktails as our high-level recipes, and then grounded them out into seven unique different styles or kinds of cocktails out there. There are so many factors involved in making a good cocktail. We were just speaking with someone who equated it to a chemistry lab. You've got the ingredients, you've got the process, and as you were just saying, you've got the grammar. How can you take all of those variables and make them work so that you have a computer that spits out the perfect drink? It's not easy. I like the comparison to a chemistry lab that's very apt. But kind of like all food is very sort of like a chemistry lab, and yet somehow we all manage to use our kitchens every day in some capacity or another. And so I think a lot of it is just being very smart about when and where the computer is allowed to make a choice and also trying to sort of avoid a lot of the additional complexity you get as you go to deeper and deeper and more and more refined ideas. So if I don't have to ever describe to the computer what an atom is, right, and I can work on the ingredient level, then I don't have to worry about things like how different ingredients sort of mix together. I don't have to build a fluid model or anything like that. I can just go, well... If I mix these two ingredients together, I'll probably get a result that looks something like this. And so, yeah, I think the, the key part there, though, and one of the reasons why a grammar was so useful in developing a system was restricting the amount of things the computer was allowed to think about at any time, given past decisions it had already definitely committed to. Within computer games, there is this notion of a physics engine, and you, know, you can describe how the different game objects, how much weight they have, whether they're resting on each other, and then the game engine can sort of figure that out. There really isn't any equivalent notion of like a chemistry engine that's out there. So as a result, if we even if we wanted to get down to the chemistry level and defining what these drinks were like, man, we would then be like forced to try to, you know, resolve all these chemical equations, you know, all by ourselves, you know, within some sort of chemical equation editor and and that, you know, that would just take a long time to create that engine as well. And then even more, like that's still a relatively undefined science of exactly what chemicals and combinations of chemicals lead to certain flavors and taste perceptions in people's mouths. So kind of to go like any deeper would have required just a lot of like mechanism and science that just isn't out there. Fun anecdote I've got is that it's something like 200 different chemicals that contribute to the flavor of coffee, which is a lot. It's a lot to model. How were the finished concoctions tasting. What were they like for the people who got to try them? I went back and reviewed the paper and did sort of have our participants in our research study that we ran on cocktail tasting, which is a thing that happened in 2015. And so our participants did actually sort of on average rate the generated cocktails as being of a poorer quality than 
cocktails that come from the International Bartending Association's official list of this is how to make cocktails. But they were also rated as more novel and more interesting. The generator probably came up with cocktails that were a little worse, but certainly could have been used to help spark new ideas or perhaps have a different twist on some more established and sort of well-known concept. Do you think we're ever going to have a true AI bar where the offerings are entirely computer-generated? I think that at least some bar out there is going to go full AI. It's just too juicy of a bar concept to get people to come in to where somebody isn't going to go, I have a business pitch. Whether or not that bar is going to be like known for its craft cocktails or not is, I think, a slightly different question. I think it's possible. And I certainly do see sort of a space in which we build tools to help sort of the average Joe come up with new cocktails that he or she might like. I really like the idea of an automated AI bar where maybe it's trying out new things, then getting feedback from the patrons of the bar. And then based on that feedback, it's tweaking the recipes and maybe iteratively improving them. And so, you know, in our initial study, we weren't able to get into that, like, oh, what if we take this feedback from people and modify the cocktails based on that and improve them? But I'd like to think that if you could get that feedback loop going where the people at the bar were giving you like, oh, yeah, this is good, or maybe it's too sweet or too sour, and it could actually adapt based on that. I'd like to think that in general, the computer generated cocktails would be way better than the existing ones because it would it would be in this feedback loop. Whereas I think a lot of the existing cocktails, yeah, maybe there was some original bartender who did that once upon a time. But they could only do so much experimentation, and probably that experimentation wasn't very rigorous and wasn't driven by some AI algorithms. So I'd like to think that an AI coming up with these new ideas could could do a better job than humans over time and and developing novel cocktails. But yeah, you'd have to have the bar going up and going and, and working for a while to be able to get that iterative feedback loop really, really at work. So where do you see this AI bar showing up? In San Francisco, Chicago, New York? Or do you think it's probably going to end up somewhere in Japan, maybe Tokyo? San Francisco, for sure, right? San Francisco already has the robot bartending competition every year. They're halfway there. And I'd like to think that Japan, like, boy, in my mind's eye, like Tokyo, they're just so into gadgets and technology in Japan. I'd like to think that they would, would be up for this idea. And then my heart of hearts, like New York City was where the first Automat was. There's still some people there who I think like this notion of automation in New York City. So, and there's a lot of people there. So you'd think, you know, even if it's a very small audience, like there's still so many people that they could support this automated AI bar. But yeah, certainly San Francisco, you can imagine one in, in uh, San Jose or in Mountain View, maybe in, in the lobby of one of those Google buildings, like that, that could be a place. Like, you know, you'd like to think that those would be the, that would be the heart of it. And maybe the, the ultimate would be one of these days you'd have a self-driving car with an automated AI bar in the back. That would just be, be the ultimate, right? Yeah, so you've heard of Uber Eats, and this would be Uber Drinks. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to look at one type of drink mixing that really shouldn't be done. Alcohol and energy drinks. Now, I know that lots of people are going to have an opinion on this statement, and so our guest teacher is a researcher who has not only put time in the lab, but also sat in front of government committees. His work has helped to develop policy and laws that now govern how these mixed drinks are sold. His name is Timothy Stockwell, and he is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Victoria and the director of the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. 
tell us about your research on alcohol and health and how you've worked with governments to not only change policies, which is admirable, but also laws, which is just awesome. I did a paper when I came to Canada, I was working in Australia before, on alcohol pricing and taxation as a way of improving public health. And it kind of got taken up and circulated around and I got invited to go to Edinburgh and meet with the Scottish National Party government, the, the, new, the new government, I think it was in 2011, because they were wanting to take action on alcohol. The real huge up, uptick in liver cirrhosis deaths. So I yeah, went out there and gave seminars on our work. And then the relationship started. I worked with a group at Sheffield University modeling what would happen if they would introduce different levels of minimum unit, uh, price for a unit of alcohol. It's like a standard drink. And what impact that would have on alcohol-related deaths, hospital admissions, crime, revenue, that kind of stuff. And I got a grant from CIHR around that time to evaluate the impact of minimum pricing in Canada. We have various forms of it. To, and we found connections between the rate of minimum pricing and, and changes in that and opposite changes in deaths and hospital admissions. So that got their attention and... Yeah, it's it's been part of an ongoing process. It went through all the courts in the UK up to the uh, Court of was it the human, human Rights or Justice or something in The mm -hmm. Hague, and then back down to the High English High Court or whatever, whatever they call it, before it was finally resolved that Scotland was allowed to enact the legislation that it had already passed in 2012. They were blocked by the EU in implementing last May. <laughs> After all that time, <laughs> they introduced a minimum unit price of 50 pence. You can't sell anything for less than 50p for a unit, which is eight grams of ethanol. Why would anyone want to mix caffeine and alcohol? Oh, lots of reasons. And like we've been drinking alcohol for at least 10,000 years. I say we, we humans through recorded history. And we've discovered all manner of stimulants as well, whether it's tea or coffee, tobacco. And so many people combine CNS depressant substances like alcohol with CNS stimulants like tobacco and caffeine and maybe even tea, but it's, it's more of a thing for, for caffeine these days, and tobacco's been long-standing. So the reasons are that you get sleepy after two or three drinks after a while, and they need something to give you a bit of go and energy, and so, yeah, you can party longer, I think, is, is the simple explanation. Go through the night, lots of caffeine to give you energy, alcohol to take away your anxiety and fear and feel relaxed. What would the health risks then be having alcohol mixed with an energy drink? Well, the funny thing is, I don't think there's actually any health risk or much from caffeine. I'm sure you can probably, I don't know, mess up your digestive system if you, or, or poison yourself if you take loads of it and wreck your sleep. But the main problem is that it people just drink more alcohol and so we the, the effects of alcohol are well known so if you party longer you think you're relatively sober in control it's sort of this waking drunk state and think you're safe to drive so there's say immediate short-term safety risks but if you keep doing that combination you're just taking more of both drugs on board and it's the alcohol so the caffeine gives you the energy to party longer and it's the alcohol that you, you that causes the harm to 
virtually every organ in your body if you work hard enough at it. Was this the basis of your appearance in front of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Health talking about alcohol being mixed with energy drinks? Well, it was one of the reasons, because with a student order aroma, we've conducted quite a large study on this, and uh, we had some results that we were able to share, but also advice for policymakers about how to avoid the situation that prompted this inquiry, which was the tragic death of a 14-year-old girl in Quebec. I believe it was Quebec City, but she consumed two cans of a drink. Well, I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to say the name, but I will. It's called Up, and it's 11 point was 11.9 percent um, alcohol content, uh, about a 500 plus milliliters. It was basically four standard drinks in a can, and she consumed two of them and collapsed, fell into a river, and drowned. Uh, I think it was on a lunch break. And anyway, that's what that tragedy prompted the inquiry, and we had relevant research to share with the committee. What were the recommendations that came from your presentations? Well, we had 10, and they covered a a range of areas. The one that was immediately been taken up was actually to limit the number of standard drinks, limit the amount of ethanol, the stuff that does you harm, to 1.5 standard drinks in a container. They were actually asking, well, should we limit the strength or the size? We said, no, you have to effectively limit both. It's just the amount of alcohol. So you could have a very big container that has low alcohol content, still get a lot of alcohol. You could have a tiny one that's very strong. Best just to limit to the number of standard drinks. So that was one. Then limiting sugar content, limiting caffeine content of these mixed beverages, having other clear labeling. For some reason, alcoholic drinks can fly past all the regulations that apply to everything else we put in our mouths that we drink and eat. And there's no labeling requirement to tell consumers what the risks are and what the contents are. So we recommended that's changed. We recommended not calling drinks things that encourage drinking to excess, like this, you know, delirium, rehab, for loco, f- up, things like that. We recommended updating the advertising regulations in Canada so they covered the modern digital media, not just television and radio. But the most important one was to correct the way alcohol is taxed by the federal government. And the way it is at the moment, it actually gives incentives for producers to make products like that one I mentioned, high strength, cheap products, because the tax for these beverages is less related. For If it's, say, malt-based, this drink that the girl died from was basically made from beer products, from malt. And it meant that like a 2% a version of that drink would be taxed at the same level as a 12% version. So there's no incentives to produce high quality, lower strength, safer products. So our main recommendation was to give financial incentives for the manufacturers, the retailers and the consumers to choose lower strength, safer products. I've worked in trying to change policy to improve people's health. I always find that there's a wee bit of a problem And it comes in the form of something that we know as rugged individualism. Basically, people don't like to be told what to do by government or pretty much any authority. Why do you think that these regulations have been so necessary to help reduce the consumption of these two drinks together? Is it really just the fact that people are not listening or is there some other factor? 
I have to say up front, my bias is towards trying to promote public health and safety, so helping people be healthier, live longer lives, be safer. And beyond that, my bias is towards looking at evidence. When you look at the evidence for alternative things we can do to limit harm from using substances, and alcohol is a very good example, probably our most widely used or harmful substance, policies on price and taxation, policies that affect the affordability are the most effective. It's as simple as that. But then, of course, you do have this issue of selling that because people hate taxes. But it's kind of funny. I mean, there's different ways of presenting uh, the same policy and you get the opposite response. You say to somebody, would you support putting a five cent extra levy on every standard drink and the proceeds are used to fund treatment and prevention programs? Most people say, majority say, yeah, we're for that. Would you yeah. be in favor of an across the board increase in tax to stop people drinking too much? No, that wouldn't work. And and that would be a, a grab, you know, tax grab by the government. No, we pay enough taxes. So it's often how you present it. And minimum pricing is another example. People are much more favorably disposed towards that than they are to cro across the board price and tax increases. So there's different, it's effective and you have to present the most feasible, publicly acceptable version of the policy that is effective. Because if people don't think there's a, it's important enough or there's a need to, to do this regulation, they won't support it and so it doesn't happen. But we know that, for example, only 25 to 30% of Canadians are aware that drinking alcohol is a significant risk increased risk gives an increased risk of cancer cancers of the digestive system cancer and um, breast cancer likely also prostate cancer and a range of other cancers so a minority of canadians are aware of that why would they support taking the product seriously i mean a lot of people i think regard it as almost like a health product oh, they say, oh isn't it good for you in moderation so why do anything to restrict it maybe the more available it is the better it will be for our health and we'll all live longer so i think we do have to sort of give accurate information to support people making individual decisions but also so that we citizens in a democracy can be informed and invite our representatives, our policy makers and decision makers to act in a way that will effectively reduce harms. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it inspires you to venture out and try a little mixology, either as a creator or consumer. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming, and we want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show, usually in the form of a new episode. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week, and as always, make sure to show them some sass. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.